Welcome to the Red-Haired Archaeologist. I am your host, author, and sunscreen advocate, Amanda Hope Haley. Thank you for spending some time with me today, studying artifacts our first century Near Eastern ancestors left behind, and considering if some of those items just might change how we read or read into scripture. If you ever take a planned tour of Israel, or even if you just look at itineraries online, you'll probably find visits to a lot of important locations where Bible events are said to have happened, especially in Jerusalem. Every single building seems to honor an event, or maybe there's a plaque on the outside of the building commemorating something that happened there. Considering that Jesus was only on this earth for 33 years, there's really a surprisingly high number of places that honor him. This is especially true within Jerusalem. Almost every moment of his life that is mentioned in the Bible can be visited. And as we've talked about in previous episodes this season, some of those places you can even go to a couple of different times in a couple of different places. There are two different places that claim to be ancient Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine. And when you go to Nazareth, there are two different locations that are honored as the place where Gabriel told Mary that she was pregnant with Jesus. Often these places are constructed to honor an event. And so nothing archaeologically would be left behind. So how do we know that the locations that are being honored and that we make pilgrimages to and that we visit as tourists, how do we know that what the tour guides say happened in those places actually happened there? The short answer is we don't. And the much longer answer is tradition. And that's what we're going to talk about quite a bit today. I will hazard to say that most of the traditional Christian sites throughout Israel are there as a result of a woman named Helena. She was the mother of the Roman Emperor Constantine. They, as a family, converted to Christianity. So in 326 CE, (laughs) Emperor Constantine sent her into the Holy Land for her to search for sacred sites and search for relics. She had only been a Christian herself for about 10 years at this point, but the work that she did on behalf of this new Christian faith that was taking over the Roman Empire really changed the practices of the church. Tradition holds that she identified the places of Jesus' birth, his burial, his ascension, and on all of those sites, she commissioned churches to be built. She is doing this work roughly 300 years after Jesus' crucifixion. She is not a local. She has traveled to this region. She's really starting from nothing. She goes around and she starts talking to the locals. And even among the local population, it's been, let's say, 200 years since anyone has been alive who was on the earth when Jesus walked it, who may have been there or who was young enough to have heard firsthand stories of where he was and what he did um, in all these locations. And so she's relying not just on memories, but on, on stories. And I think we all know that stories have a tendency to grow and to change. For example, one branch of my family is related to President James Madison. 
It was something we'd been told. In fact, Madison is a popular middle name among some of the women in my family. We were using it long before it was cool. In fact, my grandmother's name was Ann Madison. And being from Virginia, she was called by both names. After she passed away, we were sitting around as a family going through old pictures and home videos and just remembering her and discovering what was there for the family, cleaning some things out, just doing those things that you do when a family member passes away. And we ran across a home video that was shot at my cousin, whose name is also Madison, my cousin Maddie's first birthday party. And in the video, my granny is sitting on the couch talking to so my, my uncle's mother, and she is regaling her of the great tradition of the Madison bloodline that is in little Maddie sitting there. And she says to her, oh, yes, we are directly descended from Dolly Madison. <laughs> and when we were watching this, we all paused and we all looked at each other. That's a strange person to pick out of the lineage. I feel like most people would say James and not Dolly. But what makes it especially curious is James and Dolly Madison never actually had children. In fact, we are descended from James's brother. Anyway, this is an example of how over about 200 years or so, a story can grow and change and some of the details can get lost. So whenever you go to Jerusalem and you're going to some of the most famous pilgrimage sites, just keep that story tucked in the back of your mind. Most of the people who are going to be turning you around and explaining it to you are going to enthusiastically believe that what tradition says happened in that location absolutely happened in that location. A quick way to visit a lot of these places all at once is to follow what is called the Via Dolorosa. And this Via Dolorosa means the sorrowful way in Latin. It is presented as the route that Jesus took when he carried the cross uh, to Calvary after the Romans sentenced him to death. And I would guess that maybe this is the most common pilgrimage that Christians make today. But today's route is actually anything but ancient. It doesn't even go all the way back to St. Helena. It was actually redefined to what it is today in the 18th century. So for some perspective, that is basically around the time America was revolting against Great Britain. That is when the current path of the Via Dolorosa was set up. So we're talking 1700 years plus after Jesus's death that all this was being laid out by the Catholic Church. It contains 14 stops and most of those are churches. A few of those are just plaques um, on the wall. And if you decide to do the entire thing, then you'll walk about a half a mile in order to complete it. It begins at what is today a local elementary Jewish boys school. That is in this sort of compound that it shares with three churches and a small museum. I last visited this location in 2019 and we got there late morning. I don't remember it being particularly hot yet. And at that time, we saw a rather large group. I'm, I'm going to say 20 to 30 people. They assembled over near where the school was. And one of the members of their group was picking up a very large, heavy looking wooden cross. And so what a lot of these groups will do is walk this half mile. And it's an arduous walk. Jerusalem, of course, is on the top of a hill, but it is very hilly and its streets are rolling. And so the path of the Via Dolorosa is very up and down, and it can be challenging even when you're not carrying a giant cross on your back. 
So what a lot of these groups will do is trade off and different people will have the opportunity to carry the cross at certain points. Along the route itself, most of the stations actually don't even honor events that are mentioned in the Bible. They honor traditional events. And one in particular that comes to mind is the story of Veronica. She is a saint in the Catholic tradition, and the story goes that as Jesus was going to Calvary, she stopped and she wiped his face. And so that is memorialized on the Via Dolorosa. There's several places like that as you go. And then the route ends at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And the last five stations of the Via Dolorosa are in there. If you make it to Jerusalem, you absolutely have to go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It was completed in the fourth century, although it's had a lot of additions and work done to it and repairs and such over over the many centuries. But it has the oldest tradition and the most widely accepted tradition of being the location of Jesus' burial. The Roman Catholic Church and a handful of Orthodox traditions are responsible for maintaining what is really this massive building. And when you go inside, there are different sections of the building that are devoted to those different Christian traditions. It's very labyrinthine. When you get in there, it's very easy to get lost. And I remember not liking it the first time that I saw it. When you see it from the outside, it's rather unimposing. It's tall, but if there weren't masses of people standing around waiting to get inside, I think you might even miss it on the streets of Jerusalem. It just from the outside blends in with absolutely everything else. But once you step inside, it's highly decorated and, dare I say, gaudy. There's a lot of gold and silver and jewels and paintings everywhere and even Some of the paintings have jewels embedded in them. And what greets you is just the exact opposite of what is outside. What is outside is stone everything. And what is inside is glittering gems and gold and silver and metals and incense burning smells. All of that kind of stuff is is what greets you when you walk in the door. And when you walk in the door, you can grab a brochure from there and just walk around the place yourself. As I said, it's really easy to get lost. So (laughs) do your best to keep a finger on your map of, of where you think you are at the time. Or you can hire a guide. A lot of people do that. When you're walking around, in fact, you'll run into groups and you'll hear guides talking about the different relics that are inside the church and the different stations of the Via Dolorosa that are honored in there. And it's really easy and probably even accidental to eavesdrop on some of these tours that you did not pay for. But that's never the best policy because you never really know who's talking and you don't know what that person, if they actually know what they're talking about or not. I would recommend doing some reading before you go there, picking up the brochure, doing it yourself, or finding a reputable tour of the place. Those are your options. Inside, what these tour guides are telling everybody about are several relics. And to begin with, there is the Stone of Unction. And that is where they say Jesus's body was prepared for burial. And then there's the Rock of Calvary. And on that rock, they say, is where Jesus was crucified. And then also Jesus's prison cell is in there. So those are all in different locations in the church. But the real highlight of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre 
is this domed rotunda that sits over a smaller domed building that is called the Edicule. And the Edicule, they say, was built over the tomb itself where Jesus, his body laid for three days. And the angel stone, which is a fragment of the rock that they say closed the tomb. If you don't have a whole lot of time and you want to go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, go straight to this location. It is beautiful. For Easter, I posted on my Instagram account an image of the edicule and then looking up toward the ceiling of the larger Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And there's this beautiful 12-pointed star up there, which the brochure will tell you represented the 12 apostles that Jesus sent out into the world. And you can see a little bit how, again, highly decorated everything is. There are these 10-foot-tall candlesticks that are strategically placed around the building, and they're burning very brightly. There are velvet banners that have images of the Christ, very, like, blonde, blue-eyed, European-looking depictions of Jesus. And then on the back side of the edicule, there is this very small, but very elaborate Coptic Orthodox chapel. And I remember when we were standing in line, because you're probably going to stand in line for, I don't know, an hour or so, but there's so much to look at. It's okay. But you wind around the edicule waiting in line. And then once you start to get close, you're on the back side of it and there's this chapel and you're looking inside. And we were all just pointing things out and talking about it and feeling like we were alone in our thoughts within this group of probably several hundred people packed in there. And then all of a sudden, we didn't realize there was somebody dressed completely in black sitting in there and he moved. And I screamed. (laughs) It absolutely scared me to death. Anyway, there was somebody in there, I guess, watching the pilgrims, protecting things. We were allowed to take photographs at that point, but that sort of foreshadowed what would come when we got around to the front part of the edicule. And when you get there, the first thing you will see are Franciscan monks who are just doing their best to manage traffic. And so you there's a flight of stairs that you have to go up to get inside the edicule. And the first monk was at the bottom of the steps and he was a gatekeeper. He told us when we could walk up. And then the second monk stood on the outside of the doorway there. And he, again, told us when we would be allowed to walk inside. And then there was a third who was stationed inside just next to where the angel stone was. They have it posted everywhere. But the monks, I think really what they're there to do besides just protect everything is to make sure that people don't take pictures of this. And I wish I could. I wish I could share with you a photograph of what it looks like inside the edicule, but we're not allowed to do that. And my mom, you can take pictures like right up until you go inside. And my mom got her phone smacked out of her hand by one of the Franciscan monks as she was entering. She wasn't trying to misbehave, but you're just, it's exciting. You're seeing this space and you've been waiting for an hour or more to go in there and you want to take a picture and have that and send it back to your friends. But this is one of those locations that it's the closest we can get to holiness these days. And that is to be experienced. It's not to be photographed and posted on your Instagram or shared on Facebook or TikTok or anything like that. It is still a holy place. It may or may not have actually been where Jesus's body laid for three days. But the experience is, I think, very important for the Christian pilgrim. So maybe if you're like me and all the glitz and glamour and everything that surrounds the Edicule and the Holy, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre's location of Jesus' burial, maybe 
that just doesn't work for you, then fear not. There is another place where you can go and see where Jesus laid for three days. And that is called the garden tomb. You have to walk through the most bustling parts of Jerusalem to get to it. But it is this walled-in garden, and it stands between a French seminary and East Jerusalem's central bus station. So as you can imagine, it's very loud around where the garden tomb is. But in 1867, when this site was identified, a local Jerusalem man thought that it would be a great location for farming. There wasn't a bus station at that point. And so he got in there, began clearing the area so that he could cultivate the ground. And he found a cave that at that time was halfway filled with dirt and bones. About 30 years later, a group of British men, they formed an association called the Garden Tomb Association, and they purchased this land from him for 2,000 pounds. And at that point, these men who were led by the Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury, they got in there, they put up the walls, they cleared the land, and they planted the garden that is there today that you see when you go in there today. It's basically a charity. And so when you go there, all of the tour guides are volunteers, and they sign up to work one 40-hour week each year. And this is obviously a great charity because they have a backlog for years of various people wanting to do just that. They don't have trouble getting volunteers to come out and do it. And so what you have is people who really want to be there and they're refreshed because they're not doing it 365 days a year. And the entire vibe there is just incredibly friendly. The flip side of that is that you may not get the slickest, most professional presentation of their argument for why this is where Jesus' body laid for three days. And what they do is you're paired off with a tour guide and they just walk you around the small garden tomb and they have these spiral bound laminated pages the tour guide will take you up onto an elevated platform that sort of overlooks the bus station. And he points you to look off into the distance at a rock formation. And the rock formation has been damaged in the last few decades, actually, I think. But he has pictures of what it looked like back in the early 1900s. And it looks like a skull. You can see that there is a face there. And that is basically the entire argument for the garden tomb is that Jesus' crucifixion happened in the shadow of the skull. The archaeology doesn't exactly agree with their assessment. The tomb itself is carved out of limestone. There's a doorway that's about four and a half feet tall and 21 inches wide. And when you get to the doorway, you have to step down into the tomb. You step down about 10 inches. And the headspace, I think it's maybe about, I think it's maybe about six feet tall once you're down in there. My husband is 6'1", and my father is 6'3", and I remember them having a little trouble with that. So it's in inside this space, there is room to lay three different bodies. But archaeologists today actually believe that the cave was probably carved out of that limestone in the Iron Age. And so that would have been in the time when the kings of the united and divided monarchies were ruling in Israel. They did find evidence that the space was reused during the Byzantine period. So around about the time that St. Helena was coming in and, and locating all of well, and identifying the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, actually. But there is no evidence that it or really any other cave in that area 
was used during the first century for burials. But this is an incredibly beautiful place. And it's an oasis in downtown Jerusalem. And somehow when you walk behind those walls, the hustle and bustle of the city just fades and the temperature probably drops 20 degrees. It's probably of the three options we're talking about today, maybe the least likely location for Jesus to have laid for three days. And it's also an example of finding what you're looking for. I know I say this a lot, but one of the first rules I learned uh, when I started studying archaeology was when you go looking for something, you will find it. And I think maybe that's what happened here. The group of men who formed this association back in the 1800s, they were looking for a site to oppose the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which was run by the Catholics and by the Orthodox traditions. And so what you have here is basically the polar opposite of it and an example of even why the Protestant tradition or one of the reasons why the Protestant tradition peeled away from the Catholic tradition. And that was the idea of saints and everything. And so what you have in the garden tomb is this very stripped down organic location where they say that Jesus could have laid But sadly, the archaeological work that has been done on the tomb itself and just in the surrounding land doesn't actually fit with their claims. So our last candidate for place where Jesus laid for three days is in a place called East Talpiot. And it's about three and a half miles south of the old city. It is a Jewish settlement and it is within the boundaries of the West Bank. And it's been part of the West Bank since 1973. In 1980, there was some blasting going on and a tomb was discovered. This tomb had been carved out of bedrock, much like the tomb that you see at the garden tomb. And inside there were 10 ossuaries. Back in season one, I did an episode about tombs in the afterlife. And I talked a little bit about this, but I will refresh your memory. In the ancient world, a popular way to bury people was when they died, They would be laid out in the center of a family tomb and the flesh would be allowed to rot off of their bones. Once that had happened and the bones were loose, then family members would go in there and in some cases they would sweep the bones to the side or maybe there were cubby holes that had been carved in the tomb itself and the bones would go in cubby holes. But a popular way to do it, especially in the first century, was to use these stone carved boxes that were called ossuaries. And so someone would be laid out flat, however long it takes for the flesh to roll off the bones. Then someone would collect those bones, put them in the ossuary. Well, so there are 10 of these ossuaries that are inside this family tomb. And six of those had names that had been scratched into the sides. The tombs were made out of limestone, which is relatively soft. And so they had been carved with the names and the inscriptions were all names from Jesus's family. And one of the ossuaries has an inscription that says Jesus, son of Joseph. Missing from this cave and this group of ossuaries, if you want to follow the train of thought that maybe this was Jesus's family's burial cave, you would have expected to see James there. And there's not an ossuary that has James's name. In 2002, an antiquities dealer in Israel revealed a first century limestone box and engraved on the side, it said, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. 
as soon as this came out, it was immediately scrutinized by the archaeological community because it was basically being held by a collector and it had not been found what we called in situ. It had not been found in a burial cave somewhere. Instead, it had been sitting in this guy's closet. He had acquired it in March of 1976. When the buyer of the box released the inscription's translation, he actually ended up getting indicted on forgery charges. The international community looked at the part that said brother of Jesus on there, and there was a debate as to whether or not that had been added to add value to the ossuary itself. Side note, this ended up being in the courts for years and years, and the man was acquitted. But the judge made a note when the man was acquitted and basically said, this is not a ruling on whether or not this box is authentic and that this inscription is authentic. The man was acquitted. So this is still just a big question in the international community or in, in the community of archaeologists. Was this box, like, did it say James, brother of Jesus? So since it is now thought that maybe this box actually came out of that family tomb. Basically, a grave robber went in there in the 1970s and found it and sold it on the black market. Sadly, this happens far too often. If you're listening to me, then odds are you are familiar with a character called the Naked Archaeologist. Some people have even compared me to him. I'm not sure how I feel about that. He has a television series that come on periodically. And here in the States, I believe he's on the A&E network. But he's you know known pretty widely internationally, and he produces some really beautiful television shows. The thing is, he is always looking for ways to cut down faith. He is not a man of faith. He's certainly not a Christian. And so in 2007, he took this tomb, and he's just... He made hay with it. I don't know how else to bet it. Um, he, he did a series exploring this, telling people all about it. It was very informative. But for him, this was a chance to prove that Jesus was not resurrected. Because in order for this cave to have been the family cave of Jesus, in order for that ossuary with Jesus's name to have been on it, then the flesh would have had to rot away from Jesus's bones. His bones would have had to remain and they would have needed to go into an ossuary. This, of course, for the Christian faith doesn't make sense because he raised after three days. So there never would have been a need for an ossuary for Jesus. So even if this was Jesus's family's tomb, Christians would say there's absolutely no way that was Jesus's bones that were inside of that ossuary. So the naked archaeologist contends that these were the bones of Jesus and this was his family's tomb. And the archaeology works out to a degree. Everything is from the right time period, the location. You can make arguments for whether or not it would have been logical for his family to have a burial cave here. You can make that argument. But I think what is probably more likely is that this was the family tomb of some early Christians. Because the names that are on all of these boxes were really common first century names. And there's graffiti inside this tomb. There are really early marks that Christians would make. The sign of Jonah is found in there. And so there's basically Christian graffiti inside this area too. And I look at this and I see that this was an early Christian family who maybe they were even naming their children after some members of Jesus's family. We don't know. We can't know. There are really only 
first names on here. We can't identify it more closely to a particular patriarchal line than has already been done. But that's what I see here is this is some other family's tomb. And they just happen to have a guy named Jesus who was a part of their family. I didn't set out to make this a debunking episode, (laughs) but I guess that's where we ended up. I just, I look at possible places where Jesus could have been buried and I'm reminded that stories can be flawed by long memories and by generations of transmission. And artifacts, even once they can be scientifically verified, they are still subject to interpretation. And the exact identification of where Jesus's body laid for three days or really any other event in the Bible for that matter, having that exact identification shouldn't be necessary for faith. But seeing these sites, going to these places and considering Jesus being there and being in that space, that helps us to connect with 2,000 years worth of Christians who have come before us and have believed. And then it also helps us to contextualize the Bible, to get a better mental image of the stories that we read in the Gospels. So these sites aren't valuable because they prove the Bible. They're valuable because they help us connect with Scripture just a little bit better. If you enjoyed this episode of The Red-Haired Archaeologist, then I hope you will listen again soon. New episodes are released each Friday. To learn more about me, check out my website, redhairedarchaeologist.com. There you will find links to my books, this podcast, and my blog, where you can interact with me and other listeners. Also look for my new book, The Red-Haired Archaeologist Digs Israel. It is available now as a print book, ebook, and audiobook from all of your favorite retailers. 